What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 123 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with podcast host and author Joanne McNeil. Thanks so much for checking out my show. If this is your first time joining the Adult Education Podcast, I sincerely hope that you like what you hear and that you stick with us. I would really appreciate it if you would take a second to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're using and feel free to share the show with your friends. I find that word of mouth is the best way to inspire new people to check it out. I know I've told you before that my primary job is as a morning show host on a radio station in Baltimore. That radio station is owned by iHeartMedia, so I hear a lot of commercials for iHeartRadio products. I like to think that I'm impervious to being lured in by a commercial, but every once in a while something grabs my attention. That's where this episode came from. I was at work one morning and I heard a commercial for a new iHeartRadio podcast called Main Accounts, The Story of MySpace. I don't know if you remember MySpace, but I do. It was the first type of social media that I used. It was launched right when I graduated from college in 2003, and I dove in head first to see what it was all about. Social media at the time was uncharted territory. We didn't know what we didn't know. Now, unfortunately, over the years, social media has turned into something more than just sharing photos of our lives with friends and family. It's taken on a life of its own and mostly in a negative way, if we're being honest. But MySpace still holds a space in the hearts of those that used it some 20 years ago. Joanne McNeil is the host of Main Accounts. She's my guest today on the Adult Education Podcast. I've become fascinated with her show, and I would highly recommend you check it out. Main Accounts takes the listener on a little trip down memory lane, but also takes a deeper look at how social media began and evolved into what we know of it as today and how MySpace played such an integral part in that transition. I spoke with Joanne right after she published episode six of Main Accounts, so we do reference that a few times. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey there. What's up? Um, sorry, I'm not super prepared. I can get my mic and uh, headphones for just a minute. It's, today has been kind of a nutty day. Well, I love it. Yeah, it's been wild here too. My my daughter, I have a two and a half year old. She's been a champ at napping around this time. And all of a sudden, the last couple of days, she's decided she doesn't want to. And I'm like, no, no, no. Dad's got stuff <laughs> scheduled. You need to go to sleep. <laughs> okay, let's see oh, if this works. So right. fancy. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> is that where you record the podcast? Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I love it. I think what you've been doing is great. Uh, I'm curious how you got hooked up with iHeartRadio. They reached out to me. Uh, the producer, Jason English, uh, he read Lurking. He just sent me one of the best emails a, a person, a writer could ever get, which is like, hey, I have this idea. However involved you want to be is up to you, like from the scale of like a consultant or host whatever you want let's just talk and I'm like oh my gosh is this for real like it's just like that's what I mean because sometimes you get these emails and like they ask so much of you and you don't have the capacity but this was just like a really friendly proposal and like it was it was really just like we, we want you involved somehow that's and really cool I said you know what? the funny thing is it's like I don't think I have the host charisma <laughs> And like, we were just going to go with like a, I was like, we should definitely get an actor or something. But they're like, no, 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 this is podcasting. It's, so it, it, it is funny when I, last year, I probably thought I would have been a lot more embarrassed because I do get reviews about like, there are some reviews about my voice and things like that. Sure. Mostly it's just like, give me a break. It's just like, don't listen if I'm so annoying. <laughs> well, you know, you're, the, the topic that you're talking about, it's funny because that's one of the biggest things with social media in general is the responses you get from people. Like I, I was 
yeah. interviewing somebody last week, an artist, a musician, and I was like, I couldn't be you because you have to be so engaged in social media. Like one negative comment ruins my day. And I just, I can't, I internalize it so much that I just cannot look at comments. I try to stay off of it as much as I possibly yeah. can. And, but like, you know, in this business, it's kind of part of the deal. Yeah. I, I definitely feel that like, I think with my first book with Lurking, I was really sensitive to the comments because I felt like with a criticism, a lot of times a, a bad review, it's not necessarily that they, they don't like it. It's that they they didn't understand your argument and they're misstating it. So that as a writer is really frustrating because like you have these instincts to debate or like respond. And, and if someone is, you know, misstating your book in the Washington Post or something like that, it's, you know, it's... <laughs> there's not much you can do, but it, that's where it kind of hurts. But like, the funny thing is I, with projects that I have a real, like, I, I know what I got out of them. Like, like my novel, which comes out this fall. Yeah. Um, I know what that book is. I know what it is for me. And I'm kind of like preparing myself for those, those negative reviews, but also like having a stronger sense of the purpose and knowing why I did it. Like that's, that's helped me a little bit. I think with a project that's uh, more creative and your own intentions or, you know what they are that, that helps, but it's, I mean, it's never great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's tough. You're, you're writing a novel, which is going to be, like you said, your, it's your creativity. It's your thing that you're putting out there, but versus say lurking where that's uh, a research project in a, in a sense. So everybody's going to read that and they're going to maybe have a different emotion tied into something different that you're talking about. And they're like, well, that's not how I remember it. So it's always, yeah. and that's a very difficult thing because you know, your truth may be different from somebody else's truth or from the actual truth. And that's a very very difficult yeah. thing where those comments come floating in. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really it. And it's, you really shouldn't engage with critics, which I know as a critic, but <laughs> you can definitely engage with them in your minds. I mean, <laughs> I heard somebody say that they will, instead of actually engaging, what they do is they write out a full response and then delete it. So at least they made the effort of I writing it out it, and yeah. it gets it out of their head a little bit. <laughs> I'm like, that seems like a lot of work to just delete it, but Hey, whatever works for yeah. you. <laughs> and I, I also noticed that like, I, I have to try not to get defensive in my later writing. Like I don't, I, even if the bad faith readers are going to be critics or going to be like other journalists, like you can't write for them. You, you, you really can't. Cause then you're like losing a part of the intentions. You're letting, you're kind of letting your process go. Um, it's just something you need to pass. Well, you've got a good mindset about it, I think. I try. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joanna, I got to say that the podcast has been fascinating to me. And as I'm listening to it, it's called Main Accounts, the story of MySpace. I'm sort of surprised I haven't seen or heard more about MySpace. It's interesting because it was such a cultural phenomenon for a few years there. And I don't feel like people talk about it the way that you dive into in this podcast. Yeah, I I was kind of surprised too. Like by this point, you might have expected there to be this documentary on Hulu or something like that and this look back on it considering how popular it was. Now that you mentioned it, I wonder if part of it is generationally because it was very popular in the early to mid aughts. So there were definitely like older millennials that were on it, but uh, some of the later social media that happened, like Tumblr, that might have been for a younger generation that has like a stronger sense of it. Like there, there are just like there are a lot of adults who were too young to have used it themselves, really. 
So that that's part of it. And it, it just disappeared and it disappeared from public consciousness very swiftly because the functions people were using it for, you could very easily go to Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr to do that. So the experience, the the vibes, the experience were really unique, but I, I would be interested to see if there will be other projects about it because um, I, I was blown away by a lot of the things that I kept encountering, just things that, you know, even myself being someone who wasn't just on MySpace, but kept up with news about technology, I didn't really hear these stories then. And it it was over the course of my research that I realized just how much of a, a part of people's lives that had been at that point. And without a, a sense of awareness that you have with, say, Facebook, where you can look in the New York Times, there will be stuff about like Facebook as a company. and how, But MySpace really was always a fringe kind of subject, even if it was, it had like a mass adoption. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Facebook and YouTube kind of became popular around the same time, give or take a year. And those were the two biggest things that kind of helped the help stories start to go viral. They were the things that broke videos, that broke stories. MySpace, for as popular as it was, there wasn't this viral aspect of sharing articles or whatever on there. So that was something that the later social media did differently. So even like you said, MySpace was hugely popular, but at the same time, it didn't have that virality, if you will, um, in mm. the and the whatever the pop culture sphere. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the case, and that is what sets it apart from what we're used to now. I mean, the ways to drive attention to your work as an artist, as a musician, that was that was possible on MySpace if you say were a band just starting out, just like friended a thousand people, like which you would have to do manually and it would oh, be very time consuming. What a nightmare. I can't even imagine. I mean, good for them for doing it, but I would never have the patience yeah. to do that. My music would just die. <laughs> but that was that these were the the tricks of the trade. And for someone who wanted to be discovered, who knew that MySpace was this fertile ground for like producers are definitely looking there for talent, you saw a lot of little kind of, they seem so quaint in retrospect, but the tricks like that, or, you know, just being super engaged with people that you follow and trying to build a, a fan base, even if, if, even if you're just starting out. And for a lot of people that did work, like I, I know there were plenty of uh, musicians and bands that I came across just because they've tried to befriend me on mice was like, who's this? Okay. They seem nice. <laughs> <laughs> they seem like nice young men. Now, not all of them were, as you talked no, about. No, definitely not. The uh, latest episode that you posted, which we'll talk about <laughs> later. I mean, as of the time we're recording it, it's the latest episode that you posted. It kind of dives more into uh, some of the nefarious sides of what was going on on MySpace. But I, I also didn't realize, so I graduated from college in May of 2003. So MySpace started a few months after. And you mentioned the word generationally a couple of minutes ago. And I think it's interesting because I think my my area was like it, it teeters. Like there are a few people that I know that are like head first into social media and use it, and they're within a couple years of me. But the majority of my friends in my general age range, they don't use it. They're not active on 
anything, yeah. whether it's Facebook, Instagram, they just, they just don't care. And it's interesting because I don't, we didn't have it when we were in school. And I think that was mm. the biggest catalyst. Like MySpace, for example, was way more popular with a younger quotient than it was with the older quotient. Facebook has, you know, morphed through different phases over time, but my generation seems to have kind of missed it. Like my sort of like 1979 to 1982 birthday region kind of seems to have just missed social media altogether. Yeah, I, I think there is. I'd have to look look at like the Pew research oh, sure. here. But I mean, there's definitely nowadays more older older generations on various social media, especially if you have a public facing uh, job or, you know, just and, and a lot of things that like we might not think of as social media, like you know, if you're a plumber and you really work hard to get uh, Yelp reviews and you engage with your Yelp reviews, I mean, that's kind of like having a, a internet identity. That yeah. is an internet identity. And that is like, it's not through Twitter necessarily, but it is like engaging online and, and protecting your identity and reputation. So when I think about how many people I know who are, you know, in their 40s or older, who who just are almost fully without an internet presence, it is, it's noticeable. Yeah. But that, there's always like, you know, I, I just think about like how, you know, even, even my father watches like YouTube videos and he, he left a review for this, this roofing company that, that did a really great job. And he's, they told him that, you know, if he leaves a comment, the manager will give the team all sandwiches and it was like, Oh yeah, they did a great job. So I will, I will create a Google identity and leave a comment. So <laughs> well, good for him. That's great that he stepped up. I do, I don't know. Do you watch the show Ted Lasso at all? Um, I'm familiar with it. I haven't watched it though. So the most recent episode, one of the characters has a video that leaks out. They did not want leaking out and they're instructed to make an apology on social media. And they're like, go on Instagram, go on Twitter. And then the character goes, yeah, but stay away from Facebook. It's just for grandparents and racists now anyway. And I was like, wow, <laughs> such, such harsh, but true words. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned um, uh, online pr presence being like Yelp or something, but I remember MySpace, one of the biggest things that was cool about that, at least in my my recollection, was that it provided a lot of people a chance to have a free website. Bands in particular, yeah. I mean, they're, at the time, we're talking 2003, 2004, the internet was certainly alive and the people had websites, but the number of websites was nothing compared to what it is now. And bands, you know, especially the smaller independent bands, it was hard for them to to get information out, but MySpace provided them a place that they could just direct all their fans to and say, here are our tour dates, here's our recording update, whatever it may be. It was a free website for everybody. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because also the the part of it being a website is crucial here. Like it was on the web and there were some kind of paywalls to some of the activity. I, you would have to log in to see some things, yeah. but if you had a band page, you know, you could use it like GeoCities or something. You could use it just like as a way to just like create a page on the web. And the web was, the web hadn't been captured at that stage. So the web, like the way that, you know, if you sign up for an email account, you're probably going with Gmail. Yeah. It's like Gmail kind of controls that. And like the sense that, you know, so many people think Facebook is the internet because they haven't really explored the web. Like this was, the web was much more, integral to the internet experience people were aware of like i am using this web browser i'm going to www.whatever.com and that definitely helped with branding and it also you know something that comes up a lot uh because it's such an interesting anecdote is that 
you know, you could code these pages because the developers forgot to prevent users from doing this. Like they just like they forgot to like write some code that would make it so you can't, you know, change the colors or the fonts or like change like it, do some HTML and CSS code. When they first discovered it, this is in Julia Angwin's book. Um, she talked to some of the developers on the team. They first thought it was like users were getting hacked. And then they were like, oh, well, no, they actually really like us. Let's keep it. And, and that became this distinctive element of the MySpace experience that you can customize these pages. You can put an image in there. You can hot link images from elsewhere, like all of that kind of way of customizing, but also customizing while understanding how the web works. Yeah. That was a big piece of it too. I mean, I, I didn't think about it till after the fact because I don't know, I just wasn't thinking about development or coding, but that was a huge thing for a lot of people to learn how to do some basic web coding through that. I mean, just yeah. wanting to hack your MySpace page. I mean, just talk about like a, a weird sort of STEM aspect to it in general, which kind of looking back on it is, is fascinating. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the personalized pages were always either fantastic or fucking insanity. Like I try to go look at a friend's page and I have to sit there for 15 minutes waiting for it to load because of all the things that had to pop up. <laughs> you're like why why would you do that to all of us? Yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, MySpace was kind of it kind of had to walk so later things like Facebook and everything could run. And I know there were some things before, but I also didn't realize like how deep the social media world went. Prior to MySpace, I had heard of Friendster. I wasn't involved yeah. in it, but I had heard of it. But in your, uh, I think it was the second episode, you talk about Asian Avenue, Black Planet. And I, I mean, these are just things that never, that I never even heard of, even through like the zeitgeist, if you will, at that time. It's fascinating to hear how much things grew in such a short period of time. Yeah. I mean, I loved doing that episode because I feel like what those websites, those online communities of the 90s were doing is so much more like what would be an ideal social media landscape sure. today in terms of like, for example, that Asian Avenue. I mean, it it was a community that had a very specific community, which was Asian Americans who used the internet in the 90s, which was kind of niche and um, niche enough to like actually build, foster a, a community among people. And it never grew to a scale that these issues that we see with Facebook and the big platforms um, now deal with, I, I don't, I, I'm sure the founder would have liked to have scaled, but it might've scaled very differently in that there were communities already specifically set up as communities without like any kind of gatekeeping too. Like he, he said like in certain circumstances, it wasn't all Asian people on Asian Avenue because you could show up and talk like if you had, a cousin who's Asian or something like that. And you just like happen to like chat, like they weren't gatekeeping. It was like, it was very loose and elastic. And, but it was also because the way that communities in real life are that, you know, we don't leave a friend behind because they don't strictly fit what this party is on Friday night's going to be. I mean, we might be kind of like, well, you can come if you want, but it's, you know, we, we know you don't really like basketball and, but if you want to come, come you know, like that yeah. kind of thing. It's just like, I feel the problem with social media now is it is very strict. It's very driven by the corporate agendas of like what, how Facebook wants you to be a Facebook user is how you are going to be a Facebook user. It has very specific terms for, it has restrictions on your ability to communicate that are a little bit hard to, to see, but you, you will notice when you bump up against problems on it. 
and it's driving it is kind of like the conductor on the train for how you behave on that platform with a smaller community that does have something at stake with their own community including a founder who is part of that community like he he is not just accountable to his business he's accountable to his friends and his family who he's brought to this group so that that's what i feel like is is kind of missing today and my space is an interesting intermediary in that MySpace could feel niche because you would join MySpace and hang out with people who listen to the same music as you. And it also, generationally, there just weren't many people over the age of 30 yeah. on that on that platform. I at, felt at old at like 23 yeah. when I was on it. Yeah, you know? there was already a, a youth culture and a sense of music and and pop culture and a Hollywood vibe going on there. Um, So there was some community. Of course, this was at a scale that until that point, we social media just had not grown to. So there were a lot of the examples of, of problems that we hear a lot about on YouTube and Facebook, like really disgusting content that content moderators need to filter that largely began uh, as image based that largely began on myspace because no other platform really grown to that size or allowed you to share images as rapidly as you could at myspace there were definitely problems and when we're dealing with youth on the internet there are many problems there but there wasn't i don't know at any point that that myspace would have made sense to be for everyone except the youth. I mean, eventually youth grow up, but. Sure. You know, I, I want to go into that aspect, but I just want to touch on one other thing before we move on. When you were talking about Asian Avenue and say Black Planet as well, it, it feels like it feels like the nefarious side never happened to those. Like if you were signing up for Asian Avenue, you weren't doing it because you wanted to be a dick on the internet. You were doing it because you wanted to be a part of this positive community. You wanted to connect with other people that had a shared living experience from with you, or you were moving to a new city and you wanted to check out some of the best restaurants from your community. And you want, those are the people that knew where to send you. But whereas MySpace, it became so big. And for everyone that, you know, even if we were in a community, if you will, of our favorite band, and you don't know the goals of everybody in that community. Yeah. You don't know what they're there for. And that seems to be kind of where the biggest change happened was that it was open to everybody and everybody became a part of it. And then it opened that door to people that wanted to be dicks. Yeah. You know, in in the case of those smaller communities, like, yeah, they would definitely have trolls every once in a while, but you could address a troll. Like that's a thing you can, if you see someone acting up, you can tell one of the moderators, hey, can you just like block this person or kick them off the platform? Like the actions, like there's accountability built in because of the scale that everybody kind of like knows who to reach out to if there's a problem. That's like, and that's the scale that online communities should be because, and yeah, MySpace, like there wasn't really someone you could reach out to and say, I'm being stalked here or like this person is is sending me like aggressive messages that make right. me feel uncomfortable. Like you, there were support staff and there were incidences that they would get involved, but it was like they didn't really know what they were doing. Mm. And I, I think online harassment really wasn't taken seriously in those years either. So it would have been kind of like 
this is just on the internet, just ignore them. Like you would have gotten that kind of advice. I mean, it hadn't um, happened yet. Like, I mean, I don't want to say it hadn't happened yet. People were getting harassed online. I remember when I got my first computer, my parents warned me about chat rooms, like these mm-hmm. things happen, but it hadn't happened in the way that you would see it on MySpace. Like we hadn't seen that version of it, which unfortunately, sadly, is kind of what shifted us into the world of catfishing and all the different things that we see in our generation today. And and your latest episode at the time that we're recording this, I believe it's episode six, you talk about the story of Megan Meyer. And I remember that story. I vividly remember hearing about this, probably not immediately when it happened, but going back years. And that was the first time that I recall hearing about these super duper negative aspects of being on social media and people catfishing or pretending to be somebody else and what it could happen. I mean, but just in case no one knows what we're talking about, can you summarize the Megan Meyer story just so they understand? Yes. Um, the, the case of Megan Meyer, this was a 13 year old girl and living in St. Louis and she was chatting with what appeared to be a young guy in her area and having this online relationship without meeting him in person. Uh, he, his messages grew really aggressively cold and it kind of shifted and she committed suicide. Um, following these messages later, it was discovered that the boy was a fake account. It was created by her neighbor and her neighbor's daughter. So an adult woman and a, and a daughter and a, a family friend, they did it as a prank. Uh, Megan, it, it appears, did not know that it was a prank. She still thought that the boy was real. Um, but every element that came out of it just has this layer of surreal to it. And I think up to that point, point we talked about the surreal on myspace as just fun or goofy or weird or yeah like being catfished is there there are kind of harmless ways that you can be catfished i 100 percent got catfished 100 (laughs) percent thankfully thankfully it didn't get down a you know a road like that but it it, but yes i mean that those things did they did happen and it's just so unfortunate that that's kind of the beginning of so many things that we see now yeah and and that's that's what the, the cruelty mixed with the surreal is what I think kind of made everyone pause. And I think why the story came to such attention that it did, because yes, there had been like stranger danger stories about children on the internet, but this was something that was just bizarre. And you, you had to like, kind of, I think for most people, it's very, very difficult to get in the head of the woman who created that fake mm. profile. It just feels so cruel. It's so devoid of empathy. The fact that they were neighbors and knew each other and to be that fake to someone, to be, to miss, to like mistreat a child that way, yeah. I, everything there. And then that the most tragic ending could occur that, that this girl is no longer alive. Mm. So the stakes here are, are are baffling. Like it's, it's just, it's so tragic that the mother of Megan Meyer, who I spoke to for Mm. the podcast, Tina Meyer, it's hard for me to imagine going through the thought process, how many layers you'd have to unpack, just the betrayals, the, in addition to the loss, the grieving. um, And also that there's really not a lot 
you can do to especially like, at that time yeah. yeah i mean there there, there at, was at nothing time, yeah. there were no rules at that time for that kind of thing in the next episode we'll get into it but it's like it's very difficult to create policy that could protect something like this from happening again again this is like a very unusual incident that sure. thankfully like you know there there have been other things that resemble that cruelty but this was this was very very unusual yeah. event the answer i still think the answer is you need community-sized communities mm -hmm. now again these are people that were neighbors so like in real life they they were neighbors they were neighborly they they went out and to each other's houses and appeared very friendly at least in the, the scope of a community you can have some elements of mediation in fact like one thing in that in that episode i found really interesting that tina discussed is like how other neighbors got involved and yeah. helped her mediate like that was something that you know myspace could not do that mm -hmm. but her neighbors could make sure that she knew who who was to blame that this would all come out and so in some ways like this is a, a case of a community coming together and helping support someone who it went through a, a tragedy that is completely beyond the scope of most people's imaginations. The more I think about MySpace and you were just sort of touching on it before about how they, they didn't really have the infrastructure to, to stop a lot of these things, to watch a lot of these things. They just kind of turned the website on and said, have fun. And it kind of reminds me of in Jurassic Park where they're like, you're so focused on wondering if you could, you never stop to think if you should. And if only they had known what it would become, and how could they? But if only they had known what it would become and what would happen because of their creation of MySpace, I wonder if they would have put some safeguards in. I wonder if they would have changed some of the things that they that they ended up publishing. You know, I, I really wish I could have talked to the founders at some point, yeah. but I, I also understand why they are enjoying their privacy. <laughs> yeah, they're counting money and enjoying privacy right now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I talked to friends of Tom. Uh, Tom was I, my friend for uh, years. I haven't heard from him <laughs> forever. <laughs> I know Tom being everyone's friend, but then I t I talked to people who were like not just Tom's friend on MySpace, but apparently like friendly. And he does sound like quite a fascinating person. I I at least got enough on of uh, a picture of his life, which is you know quite a. A story of itself like he's someone who kind of like I think by the time he was 30 it just kind of lived like several different lives it's yeah. like in the hacker scene like running a porn website like doing all these like he had like this fancy literary agent at one point it's just like every every single anecdote like how did, and he's like 17 and that happened so in a weird way it feels like MySpace had to come from someone like that he's like a party guy and also has this like entrepreneurial sense and a sense of what's cool that is with the zeitgeist because he definitely had a, a finger on like the, the pulse of like Los Angeles in that moment of time and like the right bands, the right moves, um, the issues of like harassment and moderation and all of the like complicated, not so fun parts of running social media. It doesn't really think it doesn't seem like they had the brains. Anyone on in the team really was was strategizing. 
No, it <laughs> definitely does not seem that way. And I, you've used this word a couple of different times, and I forget where I saw it or where I heard it, but you've used the word user. And it's so interesting that that's the word that is used to describe somebody that is on social media. You are a user. And um, the person that I heard describe it this way, and you probably know this quote uh, from your research, but he said something like, there's a reason why her- people that are heroin addicts are also users. Like they u- they're users of heroin. Like uh, f- social media is very similar. It's designed to keep you on it. It's designed to keep you addicted and to keep you around, which is why user is the perfect term for anybody yeah. that is on it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know that people like Mark Zuckerberg will say things like, we don't like calling them users. They're, they're people, they're community members, because he doesn't want you to realize how much control he has over your interactions on Facebook. So that like the word user, it's, I mean, every once in a while you'll hear someone say we should just call people people, but like, I feel like user is really crucial to recognize the relationship that you have with these platforms, which is one of not a lot of control. And like their owners of these platforms are developers who are actually coding them. Like they have control over your experience that you you might not necessarily see and unless you have an, an interaction that exposes how it works. There's a uh, there's a quote from your book Lurking that I found that I thought was really interesting. I'm going to read it to you. But uh, how emotionally present and invested people feel when they use the Internet, a familiar but mysterious companion. The Internet is seductive, idiosyncratic, reliable, sorry, unreliable and contradictory, while it is also at your service and by your side. I, I couldn't help reading that and just being blown away by the way you worded it. Like what a fascinating way to look at the internet in general. Yeah. And I, in this book, like I really wanted people to remember that it is people, not just users. It is the humanity that we express in these spaces. And I mean, one thing that it wasn't really as talked about as much three years ago, but I feel like the, the part of that book that is probably still really relevant is how all this data is now being used as the content that creates AI. You know, this this is the grist for that mill. And so how do you feel about, you know, wedding photos you posted to Flickr becoming like parts of like little crumbs of some kind of like grotesque AI image generator? Like, is that why you posted it to Flickr? I mean, is that how you feel? Do you feel like that's respectful of your use of these platforms? Like that's something we're still kind of grappling with now, but I, I, I would like to see more of a conversation about what it means that your humanity can be like crumbled up and sold like for, you know, fractions upon fractions upon fractions of a penny. But even that's almost insulting. Like you didn't post this information to add to a big pile of data that Google and other companies would find valuable. That's not a fair trade. That's kind of like Um, like the conversation around TikTok right now. This idea they're going to, you know, use your data in China. And I understand the the point behind them trying to use the big bad wolf in this. But like Facebook uses our data all day long. They sell our data to whoever they want. Twitter is going to do the same thing. I mean, they all do it. You know, so I I don't really understand the uproar over one of them possibly doing it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tricky thing is like, so much has been normalized and it's it's hard to see what is the best step moving forward to scale these companies back. It's pretty obvious that Facebook keeps 
pointing to TikTok as a way to like deflect its sure. own regular pressure, regulatory pressure that it's been facing in the U.S. I was optimistic a few years ago that possibly something might come of antitrust legislation. I, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really know. Ultimately, it would be a good thing if these companies sure. were broken up. I don't really know how that could happen. Um, but I, I think also if we did have better data protection laws, like we are removing their source of revenue and that's, <laughs> that, that's basically they, they would crumble on their own without, yeah. without us and our data. But I, I think ultimately this is a galvanizing topic. Most people do not want to be treated like, like just crumbs. Like most people don't want their humanity, their life lived online to be just like treated like that. They don't want to be exploited once they were, I mean, and people know these companies are up to no good. It's mm -hmm. something that both sides, uh, every kind of person in the U.S., we don't unite on many subjects and for good reason. And I'm not I'm not in someone who's like, you need to reach across the aisle on anything. But I do think it's notable that like there is no politician who'd be like, Facebook is great. It's been good for democracy. There is not. You would just be laughed out of office. It's clear these companies are up to no good, and they're, it's incredibly galvanizing to legislate them. So hopefully something will come that will be a corrective measure. Uh, Joanne McNeil, we covered a lot today, way more than I was expecting to. And from all over the social media spectrum, I, uh, I actually feel like you opened up so many new doors, and I've got a lot of other questions for you, but we're going to have to save them for another chat. Uh, I would love to connect with you again, uh, maybe around the release of your novel that's coming up in the fall. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm really excited about that release. Thanks so much for having me. Your podcast is called Main Accounts, the story of MySpace. Uh, just amazing work. I look forward each week to the new episodes. Thank you so much for taking the deep dive into MySpace and for sharing the story. You can find Main Accounts on the free iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You also have a book called Lurking, How a Person Became a User. And as I mentioned, a novel coming later this year called Wrong Way. Joanne, I cannot thank you enough for your time. Thanks again for having me. Thank you to Joanne McNeil for her time today. I know life has been crazy for her lately, so I appreciate that she was able to squeeze us into her time. Make sure you check out the podcast, Main Accounts, The Story of MySpace. I know people always recommend podcasts, and most people don't ever listen to those recommendations, but seriously, this one is truly great. I think you're going to love it. And thank you to all of you for listening to Adult Education. I appreciate you. Until next week, be well.